Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Can you hear that? All those Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. My name is Eddie Eifler, and if you are here looking for full, complete poems, well, I'm sorry, but you are in the wrong place. Might I direct you over to YouTube, to Button Poetry, to Poetry Slam Incorporated. If you want to know what happened, how it happened, who was involved, if you want to get to know the people behind the poetry, well, you're in the right place. Thank you once again to our interview last week to Catherine Grace Scott. And I've got a special treat for you. Your interview this week is with 2011 National Slam champion Theo Lucifuri Wilson. This was, without a doubt, hands down, the funnest interview I have done to date. If you want to know how Theo connects to the teddy bear costume and the pregnant belly, well, you need to stick around and just prepare yourself to laugh your whole face off with this interview with Theo Wilson. So that's what's on agenda for today, but first up, we got to talk about what happened at the Minor Disturbance Youth Slam at the Mercury Cafe. Denver! Denver! Lift high our spirits, sing well our praise, for in you we live and are loved. Minor disturbance. No bad time. All right, since it was a youth slam on Sunday, we had a truncated or a shortened open mic. Uh, normally we have eight readers. On this last Sunday, we had six. Those readers were Alyssa, Jess Nieberg, Jim the Man of Steel, Jessica Bardo, Paula Rose, and Callan. A couple notable notes that we can take away from this open mic. First, I want to play you a clip from Jess Nieberg's open mic poem, because Jess has been coming with the brand new work. Um, It is just crazy how much the established poets, how much the team members, how much the the honor guard of the Mercury Cafe has been just throwing down with the brand new work. So here is a quick clip from Jess Nieberg's new poem that she read on the open mic. But you're so mature. But your body looks like something so much older. Hey, girl, you're not even worth my words. You're just a whistle out a window. Just a drive-by pickup line. Hey, girl, why the upset eyes? Now, this follows in the same thread as a lot of Jess's new work. It's a lot about sexuality. It's a lot about how she is perceived in society, inside the body of a female. It is a lot about uh, men's reactions to her and what she means to men. So this is uh, another 
uh, poem, another great piece from Jess Nieberg, with that same sort of thread, that same sort of theme that she's been really exploring. So I will keep you up to date with any new work that comes out of Jess from this, either this theme that she's been going off to or any other brand new work, because Jess is, hands down, without a doubt, one of my favorite young poets in Denver. Um, it's just a, a fresh new voice, uh, a new take on some traditional themes, and I'm excited to see where Jess takes any of these topics, anything. You know, give Jess a, a pen and a paper and just stand back and, and get out of the way. The other clip I wanted to play for you was from Callan. Uh, Callan was a voice I had never heard before. I'm pretty sure that they had never read at the Mercury Cafe, but this piece was was really well written, really well presented, and really complex, very, very dense. So I'll play you just a, a really small clip, and this is from the, the very end of this piece from Callan. But I can't clean up your mess and still expect to breathe, smothered by the weight of whatever it is you want from me. Take back your ring and your name and your clothes. Go build a house on someone else's beach. This one's closed. Now what I really liked about this poem is that it really did layer metaphors upon metaphors. So by the time that Callan got to the end of it, um, all of these things started to build upon each other and make sense in a way that they hadn't previous to the poem. Go build a house on someone else's beach because this one's full. That one line had a really hard hit at the end of the poem just based off of what Callum was able to do previous to that last line in the poem. It was just, it was very well done. It was very dense. Uh, I really enjoy the the kind of poetry that challenges me, the kind of poetry that does layer its figurative language the way that Callan did. So uh, I wanted to give a special shout out to that poet uh, being a brand new voice and just doing something very different and very interesting. Um, I, I am going to play you one more clip from this open mic. It was from Alyssa, and this is going to take us into this week's Hard Truth. As the old adage goes, fool me once, shame on you. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You gotta be cool to be kind In the right measure Cool to be kind It's a very good sign Cool to be kind So this week's Hard Truth is going to be about poetry as therapy. Uh, anyone who listened to Wheeler Light's interview knows that we brought up this idea that poetry should not be used exclusively as therapy. And while poetry and creative expression have been well-documented therapeutic tools, you can, you can do a lot with creating things, whether it's poems or music or, or other brands of art, and, and those can really help someone in a therapeutic way. They, they should not be one's only outlet for therapy. And the only reason I bring this up now and I, and I tie it to Alyssa's poem is because I've heard Alyssa read a handful of times at the Mercury Cafe, and each one has been borderline scary. Each one has been, like, made me very concerned about her as a person because all of them that I can recall are about wanting to hurt herself or wanting to uh, stop going to therapy or not trusting a therapist. Or in the case of this last poem on Sunday, it, it was about her not wanting to live anymore. If I had the choice to pick a magic button... I would pick the button that would poof me out of existence because that would be easier than hanging from a ceiling fan because I don't want my suicide to be someone else's mess to clean up and someone else's burden because I feel like my life is just a burden on other people and I don't want to continue that trend even in death. 
I don't want to die, but I don't know if I want to be alive either. All I know is that I don't want to be me. So I'm not saying this to call out Alyssa specifically. I'm saying this to call out poets who, who use their poetry for therapy and don't have any other access to uh, a therapist or, or, or don't engage in other therapeutic activities aside from poetry. Uh, poetry can be very powerful. Poetry can be very helpful. But if it is the only outlet for therapy that, that you as an individual have, it's not going to do the job. It's, it's not a 100% end-all, be-all of quote-unquote fixing the problem, uh, whatever that problem may be, whether it's depression or PTSD or bi bipolar or, or whatever. Um, poetry is great. It's a great supplement, but it should not be used as the only means of expression in a therapeutic sense. So this goes out to Alyssa, but it also goes out to other poets who who write in this same vein, other poets who use their poems as therapy, who use it as a, a means of expressing things that that may be frightening to others, but it's the only way that they can express it in a healthy way. I, I, I want you to keep doing this. Please keep writing these, but don't make it your only outlet. Don't make it the only way that you cope with what's going on. Talk to someone. Uh, get a therapist. If you can't afford a therapist, then... Uh, there are many other ways that you can, many other ways you can address what is going on with uh, uh, herbal supplements, with talking circles, with finding your group, finding your community, whatever that may be. If it's uh, if you struggle with sub issues of sobriety, if you struggle with issues of post-traumatic stress, if you struggle with issues of uh, mental illness, there are groups out there that you don't need to pay to be a member of, and, and those support systems can help you. Um, if you're only using poetry, it's only doing part of the job. And then we get uh, work like what we heard from Alyssa, work that makes people concerned. Now, the very, very little engagement I've had with Alyssa doesn't make me fear she's going to harm herself. Uh, I will say that very explicitly. I, I don't think Alyssa is going to do anything uh, drastic, but it, it does call this sort of alarm into into play when all we have heard from this one poet is about self-harm, is about not trusting a therapist, is about uh, wanting to not be alive anymore. It, it does send up a lot of red flags. So if this sounds like you, if this sounds like something you do, then please, please, I beg you, do not make poetry or artistic expression your only avenue of therapeutic exercise. Find your groups, find your people, uh, find the local tinctures, find the local uh, herbal supplements, find the local alternative healings, like th find what will work for you. And don't stop writing the poetry, but don't make it the only thing, because if it does, it's not going to do the whole job, and that is the hard truth. So now we are going to talk about your slam. We had seven combatants in this youth slam, uh, none of whom were on the Minor Disturbance uh, national team because that team went to the Green Chili Poetry Invitational in Albuquerque, New Mexico over the week and won the entire thing. That's right. Your Minor Disturbance Denver Youth Team uh, took first place in their regional bout before their big national competition. So that means that they've got some pretty good momentum headed into Brave New Voices. But it also means it gave a lot of new 
young poets a chance to get up and just show them what we got. So I've got three clips to play for you in this first round. Before we get to that, uh, I'll just break down the list of who read. First of all, we had Your Sacrifice was Brittany. And first in the slam was Mia. Then we had Finn. Then Morgan. Nico. Lydia. Anya. And Helen. So like I said, we have three clips to talk about. First up, uh, an amazing thing happened. Mia got showed up late after the draw had already kind of been figured out. So whenever that happens and where there's still space on the slam list, typically what will happen is the, the host of the evening will put whatever poet comes late up first in the first round. Uh, this is, goes back to the way they've been doing it for years. Ever since I've been a part of Poetry Slam, this has been just kind of the tradition. And they do that to discourage people from showing up late, but also if you can read first in the first round and still make it into the second round and still make a, an impression and an impact, then you know that you're pretty good at this. And that's exactly what Mia did with this very, very emotional clip. The moment you've been waiting for all these years, the moment you have found your forever family, the moment you realize that two amazing women... <sighs> Come on. Use it. Wants to be in your life forever. Yeah. Come on. You got this. You've been more than patient, waiting for someone to say they love you yeah. and actually mean it. Come on. You've been waiting to be a part of something special. Yeah. And when these two fantastic women walk into your walk into your life, the wait is finally over. These women came looking for you. They chose you. Yeah. This is how you know you're special and loved yeah. because these women took the time to find you. Yeah. Now the full context of this poem was ten things that they don't t teach you about the foster care system. So Mia is very open about being adopted and, and about processing those feelings. And this particular part, like when I was editing the audio, when I was going back and listening to the slam and, and the open mic, it, it made me well up. This one part, she was so open and raw with her emotions about what she was saying. It might not have been the best poetry in the world, but who cares? Like, this was such a real expression of emotion. This was a real connection from one person to a crowd of people, and it was beautiful. It was it was miraculous to witness, and it got Mia the high score in the first round. Going first overall is no easy task. Going first and making it into the next round is no easy task, let alone getting the high score from that first round. So this was something special out of Mia. The next clip I'm going to play you is from Lydia. Um, Lydia really, really impressed me with her work, with her craft. She was very, very good at her imagery, at being lucid, at being direct, at uh, really stating what she wanted to say in a new and original way that, that the crowd had not heard before. So here's a clip from Lydia's first round poem. Growing into skin that didn't behave like plastic, so we wish away the slivers, iron out the curls. We hate our curving naked hips and undressed eyes. Now this poem did a great job of exploring beauty standards in a way, like I said, that 
that really has not been heard on the Mercury Cafe stage before. Now, this is something that can be tricky, especially for a young poet, to go up and talk about beauty standards in a way that is not cliched, in a way that doesn't implore a bunch of tropes. And that is exactly what Lydia did with this poem. It was a, a breath of fresh air, it was very well done, and it helped Lydia get into the second round. And of course, the last clip I'm going to play you is from the last person who made it into that second round, uh, from Helen. Uh, Helen was, again, a, another fantastic writer of poems. Now, Helen went last in the first round, and so got a little bit of an advantage from the score creep, but this poem that she did was excellent. It was very well done, very well crafted. It was on loneliness. So here's a clip from Helen's first round piece. I mean that I'm just still not sure which is my blood and which the blood I was born with and how far I have to go still to make it all mine. I mean that I am still learning how not to listen to what my blood tells me to do, I mean... And one thing Helen was really able to do effectively in this piece was incorporate uh, repetition. And it was something that a lesser craftsman or a lesser poet would come off sounding cliched. But the, the repetition here was, I mean, I mean. And with this, it was just a, a way, a device for Helen to get from one topic to the next or from one expression of figurative language to the next, trying not to listen to what my blood tells me. And this was a, a really effective way to, to have very short punches throughout the poem, but to also layer those short punches on top of each other as the poem uh, really crescendoed, as it, it really hit its, its stride toward the end. Because at the beginning... Uh, it's, it was just used as a device, this I mean, I mean was used as a device to really lay the thematic groundwork. But then after that ground, groundwork was laid, uh, it really allowed Helen to play with that groundwork. You know, I'm trying not to listen to what my blood tells me. Whereas before, um, it was established that the blood tells her to harm herself, that the blood tells her to do things that she knows are against her own best interest. And so to have that trying not to listen to what my blood tells me line toward the end was really powerful, What was really impactful. It packed a punch. So that was your first round. And then your second round had Lydia, Helen, and Mia. The clip I'm going to play you is from Helen in the second round. And she read this piece it was a bit of a departure from a first-round piece, but still, nonetheless, on a level of craft-wise uh, than what we had heard from her in the first round. Uh, it was titled Century 16, and we can assume that it was from either her first job or uh, a job she had very early on in life. So here is a clip from Helen's second-round piece. Watch me refuse to fail. Watch me watch the other girl here learn to do the same. Listen, my name is not girl, is not five feet tall. My name is woman. My name is strength. Now this was more of a narrative story than it was your traditional form poem, but that didn't take away from its impact, from its meaning, and from Helen's employ of figurative language and the way that she tied it all together. Watch me refuse to fail. My name is woman. My name is strength. Those were the last words. That was the last line of the poem. And so it, it hit very hard at the end. Unfortunately, uh, Helen nor Mia ended up winning, but Lydia ended up taking the whole thing. Notable because Lydia went first in the second round. 
and had the high score in the second round. So it was a, a, a night of underdogs. Mia reading very first in the first round, getting the high score. Lydia reading very first in the second round, winning the whole night, uh, which does not happen very often. So that was your Minor Servants Youth Slam for this last Sunday. Next, we have your interview with... 2011 National Slam champion, three-time National Slam finalist, Theo Lucifuri Wilson. Our guest this week is none other than Theo Lucifuri Wilson. How you doing today, Theo? Doing good, man. Thanks for inviting me over. Well, I'm so glad you could come over. Yes, sir. I uh, got a couple questions for you, if you don't mind. I I don't mind questions at all. Go all ahead, right. bro. Well, let, let's start in chronological order here. Um, yeah. Take me through what got you uh, involved in poetry and spoken word in general, and how did you get started in slam? Well, I started off really rapping. I was at Florida A&M University when I really was into my bars, if you will. It was about 19, and uh, I just was like, uh, this name Lucifury seems to stick with me a lot. I got called Lucifer growing up because I asked too many questions up in Sunday school class. <laughs> The Sunday school called you Lucifer. Yeah, they oh called me God. Lucifer because I was very inquisitive and aggressively so. And because of that, uh, I figured that, you know, I'd investigate what this Lucifer meant. And it means light bringer. It's also uh, the ultimate, should we say, a challenger. If you're on, like, for example, a video game, like, spiritually speaking, the Lucifer is the last final boss. You know what I mean? And it's the one who reveals the most about you, the light bringer. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I like that. And um, I began to produce music under that name, uh, beats and whatnot for guys who called themselves rappers. And um, but then uh, I took these violent misogynistic raps and started uh, dissecting the punchlines. Uh, and I started making political raps and spiritual raps. And those could be classified as poems. So the first poetry slam I ever did was actually at the Legacy Cafe in St. Louis, which I lost viciously because a girl that I had been involved with got hold of a scorecard and they didn't screen her like that. So uh, it was to the point where the people who won didn't know how they won. <laughs> and I was like, and I didn't know that I could protest that. I didn't know that I could speak up. I was like, oh, no, man, karma got me. Uh, <laughs> got you. Karma's got me. But then, uh, so when I moved back home in 2004, uh, the only slam that I knew was happening was the Mercury Cafe. So I started taking these kind of rappy poems. And uh, and I started slamming there, and you know, to uh, moderate success. And then I started going to the Casbah a lot. And I, at the time started realizing that there was another level to go to which was the national poetry slam and i was like well let me start slamming so i could get there like if it's competition then i'm down you know what i mean it's not as bad as battle rapping you know <laughs> so if i could just say some deep shit and get on the team and then see what the next level looks like you know panama soweto got me interested in what the next level would look like and uh, eventually i got there on slam nuba yeah, because I think I remember the first time I saw you at the Mercury Cafe. Yeah. You went overtime every single round. I did. You, like, you made it to the third round, but you <laughs> kept getting time penalties every that, single time. Every single time, because I was like, I must finish. <laughs> I must finish this rap that I wrote. They won't get the like gist if I don't finish these punchlines. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then I had just wrote 100 Proof Liquor, which was an erotic 
very h- highly erotic poetry. Uh, I don't know what to call that thing. It was uh, it was very explosive, and I did that in the final round. I remember Ken Arkine with dreads at the time, oh, yes. uh, jaw hitting the floor in laughter, which I lost that slam to Aaron Bradley. I lost that slam to Aaron Bradley, but. Aaron's a beast, and I'm, you know, if you're going to lose to anybody, you know, that's somebody good to lose to, you know? So, you get hooked up with Panama Soweto. He yeah. lets you know what's going on over at Slam Nuba. Yeah, and then around this time, this 06, uh, Pretty Boys Pool School of Public Speaking was out, and I started going there a whole lot because that's where everybody was workshopping shit, and I could try stuff out and kind of get a sense of what, uh, you know, was the uh, effect of the poems I was having. Uh, because I was writing at the time for the Casbah stage, which is a predominantly black venue, and culturally they just respond to different shit. But I knew that if I could find a universal chord and rock these venues as hard as I was hitting the Casbah stage, then I found something that's relatable to everybody, which might increase my likelihood of doing well in slam. So I, I, I undertook it like a vocation, you know, uh, like it was a craft. I was a journeyman of sorts. And that was uh, a major, majorly uh, formative in my journey as a poet. And so Panama, right, right at this time. So then I remember in uh, 2006, the Mercury Cafe won nationals. Mm-hmm. And then Ashara Ekundayo was about to start Slam Nuba, which I was against at first. I was like, this is whack. Why are you going to divide the damn scene like this? We, what is the, you know, I was like, we just won nationals. We got to defend the title. What, you going to split the power? You know what I'm saying? But then I was like, more and more I thought about it. I was like, well, let me just try. So I actually tried to get on both teams. I slammed off Anuba and Mercury that year. This was 2007. And um, I didn't make Mercury. I made Nuba. And so, yeah, and then that's that's how that, that's, that was my first trip to Nationals. Well, I mean, yeah. defend the title, you did. Like that 07, that first year that Nuba was a team, you guys yeah. made the final stage. Uh, talk me through that experience. What was that first year like for you? It was a roller coaster, bro. The first thing that was crazy about it was that Panama Soweto was the only cat that made both teams, so we was wondering which way he was going to go. I remember that. It was a whole like thing the whole community. Like, hey, what's going to happen? This cat had the whole... Doing? Yeah, you're right. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, that, that was like... Everyone was, was questioned. Like, hey, you going to Merck? You going to Nuba? If you're yeah. going here, you got to let us know. If you're going there, you got to let them know. It was... Nobody really knew until he made his decision. Correct. So Panama had the city at a standstill in, in the slam team. And I get a call from him and he's like, you ready to take over the world? I was like, what you mean take over the world, bro? <laughs> kind of pinky in the brain shit you want <laughs> he's like no I'm talking about the slam you ready to take over the world I was like yeah does this mean he was like I haven't told anybody but I'm coming to Nuba so I was like holy shit now the city champ at the time was original woman mm-hmm. and the full team the first selected Nuba team ever was original woman Panama Soweto myself Bobby Lefebvre and Jay Harris mm-hmm. and at that time, Panama and, and uh, Original Woman didn't get along at all. And there were some things that happened in which she got voted off the island. So we had five, and we had to rock with four. And that four is what we rocked with. And it just seemed like we were enchanted. Uh, it seemed like we were blessed. We didn't understand the impact of our poems, bro. To me, we were beating poems that I thought were better than ours. 
I thought, and I, I, I never admitted that, but I was like, we're, we're not as good as them. Why the fuck are we winning? Then I saw our poems on video, and then I realized, okay, these are having a very powerful effect on the audience. We had cemented the shit out of a lot of group work. The, the yeah. ones of note that I remember from that year are definitely Ring, Ring. and Grandmother Speaks. Right? Grandmother Speaks. Mm-hmm. So Ring was a Panama indie. Uh, which I wrote four lines into, which wasn't enough to give me co-authorship. So um, that was Panama's spot. But uh, I wrote a few explosive lines in them, and these two, I guess, barrel-chested brothers, you know, going hard on black history, Ring used to shoot the door down. I remember specifically that Ring never lost. It's freaking... it, It never lost. You know what I'm saying? And Grandma... That was, you know, me, Panama, Bobby, and Jay writing into what we missed and loved about, uh, you know, the matriarchs of our family. And that poem just really went hard. Like, when I saw the video, I was like, that's why that poem dusted motherfuckers like crazy. That's the, why. The choreography, was especially, was memorable. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, taken from uh, your experience, you, you went to school for acting, right? Mm-hmm. You, you were trained as an actor. Yeah. Um, how does your acting background contribute to your writing, to your performance, to, to getting up on a stage? Well, in theater, we have nuance. You study performative aspects of, I guess, uh, the human psyche. I would say that uh, theater, the way it was taught to me, is applied behavioral science. And so one of the things we had to do was dissect our own performance as people we had to do an impersonation of ourselves and that took a lot of self-observation which made you reflective anyway it made you emotionally intelligent in a way and so uh i so the year before i started slamming i worked as an actor intern at the st louis black repertory company the largest black theater company in america and i was doing children's shows bro and they were embarrassing. Embarrassing how? What do you mean? I was hopping around in a teddy bear suit <laughs> in front of a bunch of hood-ass kids from East St. Louis. <laughs> now, here's the problem. This teddy bear is supposed to be cute, right? And I ain't have no stomach, so they gave me a pregnant belly that they put in some of the other people. This is a true story. And... I should have never shown my director that I was acrobatic. I could do flips, one-handed cartwheels, and roundoffs and whatnot. So then he gave me a little bouncy ball, which was really a small yoga ball. And I was the cute teddy bear that would go turn flips in front of, in front of these kids in his hot-ass teddy bear suit with a pregnant belly. <laughs> and after doing this... quite an image. Quite an image. And after doing this, and some kids like, ooh... And some kids were like, that ain't even tight, bro. I can do that. And I was like, when you go through this, making uh, about $198 a week, living in what is equivalent to a broom closet with bugs that I had never seen before. I literally never seen these insects that were running through my house before. Uh, Drafty floors and mice and whatnot. Uh, It kind of forged a core of ruthlessness in me. and realizing that nothing that I was going... Like, I had spent my time being embarrassed for a year. You know, and I would play... There was other roles. Like, I would, like, play... There was one role... A play that I had to be, like, about five characters. 
uh, one of them French, another one Native American, and I had to, you know, ride around on the little, uh, you know, the little stick ponies, because, you know, we were trying to do a, a like, play. Like banging coconuts together? Yeah. <laughs> and these are children's plays, some of these three times a day. So after you get fours in the fire like that, slam is a walk in the park. And I was able to bring parts of myself, I suppose, that were difficult for other performers to bring. And uh, so that that led me to have a, a kind of an advantage, you know. Because one thing that's very noticeable about you, when you perform individually, you're not, like, overly expressive. You're not, like, yeah. very blocked or very, you know, choreographed. But when you get into a group piece, that's really mm. when those, those chops can really start to show themselves. Yeah. And, like, I just want to know if that's an intentional thing. Do you kind of, like, wait until team selection comes around or teams come around bef before you really sh uh, show that out? Or do you just don't think it's necessary for you solo to get up on there? Well, I, I focus so much on writing. Um, of late, well, for example, but then there was one, you know, poem I did that had all of those performative elements, which was called Dark Jester. And in Dark Jester, I pulled virtually everything I had learned in theater and poured it into this one poem and but in general dark jester is the exception to the rule uh normally i just deliver i just stand and deliver you know what i mean and uh i suppose that that can be a weakness in some aspects but ultimately it serves me well but when i do group theater is a collaborative art so that's probably why you see it more when I do group pieces, you see all the, the different levels of uh, emotionality, you know. So, uh, we left off in 2007. Yeah. The team makes final stage. Makes final stage. Um, you didn't win. We didn't win. Would you come in third that year? We came in fourth that year. Fourth that year? The only team we beat on our final stage was New York Rican. Yeah. That's, that's quite a feather in the cap, too. Yes. That, that team that had Roger Monero guard, I remember. Yeah. And no, no. He was on bar 13. He was on, oh, okay. He was on bar 13. I believe Ebony Hogan might have been on that 20, uh, 2007 New York Rican team. And I also remember that year that there was a little bit of miscommunication with the rules. Oh, yeah, bro. You, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, we had a psychological dependency on our group pieces. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that we felt more comfortable because the only non-rookie on the team was Panama at that point. So we felt better being in a collaborative setting. And we thought the group pieces were inherently more powerful than indie pieces. That was the mythos. And so with that being uh, the case, uh, we didn't realize that you had to save some. Because back in those days, at least that year... You couldn't repeat none of your shit on final stage, which I think, you know, we thought we could. So we, you know, for lack of a better word, shot our wad before it was time. And uh, when it came to the moment of truth, when we were on final stage, we had a panic and we were scrambling. So we did what we could. We had one more duet, a controversial poem between me and Bobby Lefebvre <laughs> called Chromosomes. So when we were on the final stage, it was just uh, a blessing because we were able to um, to be like, introduce us to the world. He said that this is who these people are, and they are firebrands, and they're here to stay. And that first year established Nuba Brand as a, uh, a team of contenders. And that's what I liked about it. 
I remember that that was a year where the rules changed previous to 06 when the, the Mercury team won. That's Back right. In 06, you could repeat. You could repeat, seasons. and that's what we thought we had. And in 07, it was not only you, uh, a no repeat rule, but it was a three by five. So you only had three rounds yeah. to do what you had to do. So it's. It's really limiting, kind of, to look and see how the way it's set up now to think about doing it. Dude, back it was a hell of a freaking experience, and I'm glad that they changed it back to something more common, fucking sensical, man. <laughs> the hell were they thinking, dude? Yeah, so that was Indies. That was the last year. I think that might have been the last year of Indies. It was Danny Sherrard won, and yeah. I remember sitting next to Bobby Lefebvre, losing my shit, fully. It was almost like Danny Sherrard was slam Jesus. I don't know what it was, but all of his metaphors seemed to hit like a Mack truck. Now, this was the first year Anis Mosgani was sitting out. In two years? Does he run? He had won back-to-back. Like When we came in the game, Anis was God. Fully God. I mean, it was like, yeah. You you weren't there in 05. I wasn't there oh in 05. God, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. It was him on Indies. And this wasn't actually, the, this wasn't even the finals. This was like, they had yeah. a prelim Indies. Yeah. And the whole power and the whole building goes out. Yeah. Like, 20 seconds into his poem. Wow. Except for the power on the microphone. You can still hear everything. Holy but shit. But just complete darkness in that whole room. Yeah. And people are taking pictures. So it looks like strobe light. Like you just, wow. he's still performing. Wow. But you just catch like a split second of it. That was and like. And then like 20 seconds before he ends his poem, power comes back on again. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like, ridiculous. that sounds like utter magic. It was, it was crazy. And at that point, yeah, it was like a chosen one. It was a, the cold the personality and it was like Danny Sherrard was almost like the closest thing we could get mm-hmm. to Anish Mosgani he had an Anish-ish style but for some reason his poems seemed amazingly magical and they still are but they just didn't have the effect like they had on that day so that's that's, that's all I'm saying yeah so that's 07 um, yeah. you've been pretty consistently on teams pretty much from like mm-hmm. 08 to mm-hmm. when was it uh, 014 yeah 2014 was my last team you, before you, this year yeah it took uh, some time off so uh, take us through some of those times so those highs those lows like what are your memorable experiences well um, undoubtedly 2011 was one of the Absolutely. most memorable years that was the year you guys took it all that was the year we took it all mm-hmm. um I had been wanting to be city champ of something for the longest time, and that was the year that I got city champ at, at, at Nuba. And we just had a squad of superheroes that year. It's just what it was. That was Dominique Christina's opening year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yende Russell, who had been on the team with me before. You had uh, Javon Mays, who I had coached the year prior. So he's like my little brother coming on a squad with me. And then the very electric Brando Chemtrails who had been a monster in minor disturbance. He was a fearsome, is a fearsome poet. And when I remember when he made up his mind to slam, you had to make room. And um, that year, I remember we laughed a lot. There was a lot of shit-kicking craziness. And uh, Jen Rinaldi coached us from you know coming off of the win in 2006 it was good to have some of that energy with us that year 
And it was just this bonding thing that happened. McKenna Renee uh, was our alternate. And we won every regional, I believe. Um, and what was so interesting about nationals was that I had just broken up with my girlfriend, uh, Tiffany, uh, who I had been in a long distance relationship with two years and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was heartbroken. And a lot of people don't realize I had a full nervous breakdown uh, at nationals that year. I, I had a full collapse. I've never had a collapse like that before. I've never felt grief like that before. I never felt grief like that before. Um, the doubts and the indecisions tracing beneath our victories. Because each night, we had a successively greater margin of victory with successfully more difficult competitions. Very strange. Like, uh, you know, opening night, we barely won by one-tenth of a point. Our margin of in victory increased, but it seemed like the bouts got harder. Um, going into final stage... I had got into an argument with Dominique Christina because she's exuberant and celebratory and I'm heartbroken and she's up laughing and cackling and I can't sleep. I yelled at her. She's like, what motherfucker? And then it was just like, so we were at odds. And that day I woke up and I just had to come to Jesus with her about what was, you know, at stake for all of us. She hadn't, you know, had the best relationship. Her marriage was ending to, uh, her husband, uh, which gave her the last name Ashahid at the time. And and before final stage, Ayende just gets in the zone. I don't know how he did it. And he poker faced the draw like nobody's business. Ayende goes up and he was so stone faced. I was like, shit, we got the A, didn't we, bro? We got the A. Ayende walks by and without cracking his demeanor, he flashes us a four. And I was like, holy shit. And they kicked in the door with Amandala. And, you know, you know, Allende and Dominique, they both can sing like angels. And Ken Archai remarked to us earlier that year, it is unfair for you two to sing together. <laughs> it is unfair for you two to sing together. Well, not only that, yeah. I mean, that poem, it, not only is it just phenomenal it's, it's a crazy crazy piece but it also had a lot of buzz going on behind it too from what happened in semis oh I yeah recall, right yeah, like yeah. you guys had some kind of i can't remember what team it was but they called you out from the stage. i remember precisely what it was <laughs> you remember precisely. i remember exactly where i was because i was there it was taylor molly's team whatever new york team he was coaching it's yeah my i'm pretty sure it was it was urbana so the first two poems it was so dynamic it was almost like we were following a fourth dimensional blueprint to victory that was already written out. It's what it felt like. The way that the poems arranged themselves were so uncanny. The first two poems we did, Amandala was just Allende and Dominique, which was just unbelievably harmonious. And we drew the one in semis. And Amandala shot us out of there. I mean, it laid down the cover fire and it got us through. Then that's singing. The next poem we did was Chain Gang, highly choreographed, and it's got singing in it. Now, me, all, now all, all, all three of me, Dominique, and Allende are actually sing, have sing professionally. So it wasn't even fair. We could sing, right? Urbana comes up and under the direction of Taylor Molly, I don't know 
they they figured out to slide a line in there that said and it was this list poem that said my sex is like my sex is like my sex is like one of the lines in there said my sex is like slam nuba well choreographed and comes with a sing-along <laughs> Now Dallas was in there and these guys from Dallas had our backs and they was like, do you want me to fuck them up physically? <laughs> because I will physically, like, I remember, yo, who is this kid? What is kid from Dallas, man? He was like, we had to lightweight hold him back. And Taylor Molly looked at me and I look at Taylor Molly and I had a, like a great deal of love for Taylor Molly. I opened for him uh, in, in LA one day. And we chilled for back. So I tried to shake his hand. He shook his hand. And he was like cordial but competitive. So the next poem is Allende Russell. Now we just seen Allende sing twice. So we just got fired at by Urbana. Well choreographed in a sing-along. Allende does neither. And reads a poem about his son who died. And he cuts the hearts of everyone open without a song or choreography. It is his story of losing his child. And the egg on Urbana's face was palpable. And then Brando Chemtrails goes up in there and he does his flaming elf thing. He just, <laughs> flaming elf. He's a flaming elf. Like That's what he looks like. He looks like a self-immolating elf. And he goes up there and rocks this poem called Holocaust Museum about how you can't say that you wouldn't have joined the uh, secret police in the Holocaust when you're not fighting the Holocaust of your time right now. And when Brando did that shit on behalf of Nuba, it cemented us going to final stage. But specifically, when Urbana couldn't say a word because of Allende Russell... The, the the soul giggle hasn't soul left. Giggle. It hasn't left. Like, it's like, it's like, fuck you guys, man. That'll like that'll learn you. That'll learn you. You know. So yeah. So then you make final stage. Uh, you alluded to Dark Jester. I did. You did that solo on final stage. I did Dark Jester. Now here's the thing. So I let's recap. I Dominique and I had a falling out. And we're sitting right behind New Yorican, who is, we know, is slated to be our problem. And Dominique's sitting behind me. I'm sitting behind Carvis Lassant. And I'm afraid of Carvis Lassant at this point. His opening poem was marvelous. And Dominique hugs me from behind me and says, I love you, Theo. And I go up on stage I'm barefooted because that's our way. And I move the mics out the way. And I go into Dark Jester. And I forgot myself. People don't realize that I don't remember performing that poem. I remember entering the poem. And I regained consciousness about 20 seconds before the poem was over to dismount it. Now, Kari Jackson, the former champion, is out there. And Kari, like, after I left that poem, after Dark Jester is done, uh, it had the highest score 
one final stage for any indie. The only poem that outscored that poem was Chain Gang. And Kari said to me, it looked like something left your body, my brother. It looked like something fell over. Now, Kari was famous for a poem called Jump the Broom, which had uh, a similar ancestral feel and spirit possession to it. And I tell you what, man. Walking up and holding the trophy, being city champ, like the when they called us, it's like the way we were sitting had me file out in the correct order to be the first one to grab the actual trophy for winning nationals and the crowd was immense it was immense and i remember holding the thing with a broken heart i won nationals with a broken heart because of the end of the relationship that i had and so it's always bittersweet but the thing that remained great about nationals 2011 is that we all remained friends afterwards we remained a team afterwards, every last one of us. You know, even Brando's crazy self who walked around with a fucking deer skull. <laughs> Talk to me about the deer skull. Brando. I don't know if we're going to get into it, but you opened the door. Fucking so Brando. Kid, you got to love this kid, okay? I love this kid. You got to love this kid. Brando motherfucking Kim Trails. Where do we start? Okay. So Jim Rinaldi books us this hotel that's near these woods. We lose Brando. Brando's like, look what I got. It's a fucking deer skull. (laughs) And we're like, what in the holy fuck are you doing taking that out of the woods? He's like, I think something killed it. And it may still be back there. So guys, there's something else I need you to get. Can you come back there with me? So we're all walking through the woods, knowing that something killed a deer in the woods we're walking in. And Brando didn't find what he was looking for, but he puts the fucking deer skull in a plastic bag and takes it with us to Boston. We're renting an apartment, and Brando decides that it's a good idea to boil the skull in the pot we're going to eat with. A wild deer skull. A feral (laughs) deer skull that previously had flies and dirt and nature on it. We've only got a limited amount of pots, Brando. How else are you going to get the deer skull clean in his defense? Like, how else are you going to... Why do you have a deer skull, Brando? (laughs) (laughs) This kid finds a wire threads the eyes of the deer skull and wears the shit like a clock and he's Flavor Flav. (laughs) 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 And none of us can pry this deer skull away from Brando. Like, what the fuck? Like, got to understand. Let's look at the dynamics, okay? It was, okay, this was an all-black team. Okay? And we got shit we do and shit we don't do, man. We got shit we don't do, man. So it's me, Dominique, Jovan, and Allende, and we in our own zone and shit. McKenna and Jen, we like her classified as normal people. And then they kick us at this. And he just, he always did shit like that. He always added this weird, like, trickster Loki element to our very well settled cultural 
norms that we were so used to, and it just, it just, it, it added up wonderfully, though. It, it just added up wonderfully. And, and everyone listening, like, I've known this kid since he was 14 years old. Yeah. He's one of my favorite human beings on the entire planet. I love this kid so much. Yeah, man. And, like, I I know exactly what he was talking about. It's just like, why? But listen, we we told Brando, you're not going to wear the deer skull in competition. And it was like a sit-down like it was a come to Jesus, like Brando, we 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 can't have you. But when we win, go ahead and win. And sure enough, if you look at the picture, the fucking 2011 victory picture taken by my cousin Gilbert Swire. Gilbert Swire took the picture. All right, for the freaking Iwo Jima picture, my fucking dad calls it right. Of Denver winning nationals in 2011, you will see this fucking deer skull around Brando's neck. If you don't know what it is, it's real. Yep. He got it from nature yep. and boiled it. Boiled it in the pot that you were going to cook your, your food in. We, we had spaghetti and everything, bro. <laughs> Shit that you need because spaghetti is cheap. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a very interesting quirk about nationals. But you said that one thing you remember is just laughing and, and everyone just having dude, that bond. And dude. Do you think that is essential to a championship team, that kind of bond? I, I do think so, man, because I've been on so many of them. There was levity, bro. There was a lot of laughter, and I think what it did was it was our creative zone. We drew things out of this zone. We wrote from a happy zone, and uh, we rehearsed in that place. You know, and then, you know, because then there's the things that surround the teams. There's the people and the lives of the team. So at that time, you know, my girlfriend, you know, she would watch some of the Slam Nuba rehearsals. And Dominique's kids were always, you know, orbiting around, and especially her youngest, E.G., you know. And um, it was just, you know, uh, Brando had a girlfriend at the time who was in orbit. And it was just... These are the things that made it was this communal community building thing, you know. And I think that I I, I don't know the one to one correlation, but the two things that are unique about that year is not just that we won, but that we laughed a lot in the process. Mm-hmm. And so the next time I think that you make it to a final stage is twenty fourteen. Is this correct? Next time, mm-hmm. yeah, which was the next time I was on the team, twenty fourteen. Take me through that experience. Take me through that year. So 2014 uh, was cool because it was like my second team champion, uh, city champ status, which was nice. Um, Ken Archon was our coach that year, and he coached us a lot like he coached Minor Disturbance. And uh, I recall there being some pretty strong personalities on the team that year, uh, namely myself and Hoser and Javon. So let's take it was you, Hoser, Javon, Mary, and Johnny Osai. Johnny Osai. That was his first year. That was Johnny Osai's first year. Johnny Osai. Johnny Osai struggled a little bit that year because he was still finding his footing as a performer. And I, I, I warmed up to Johnny Osai. You know, he's the only white male on the team, and you got all these politics. These leftist, liberal ass politics. You know, you got. You know, three brown guys uh, in a, a Native American, uh, somewhat masculine, presenting gender uh, queer, <laughs> uh, Mary McDonough, and I learned a lot. You know, um, 
uh, it was different it, it, for, from my perspective it was very interesting because energetically there was a super masculine dynamic and you could lose yourself in boys town you know the fucking cock swinging burping farting jokes and talking about chicks and this that and the third and because of uh, the, the, the genderqueer masculine presentation I would fucking slip into jock locker room shit and Mary would have to call me to the carpet on a few things I didn't struggle with this as much because I knew I was supposed to make space for it at the time uh, that stuff kind of ruffled Johnny's feathers but I remember look, looking at him adapt to it now at that point in time to give you a historical context this was right at the end of the uh, Trayvon Martin situation uh, Zimmerman had just got uh, acquitted before we made this team so Javon Mays and I uh, wrote a poem called Burning House which was kind of a, a successor to Ring uh, with me and Pam Osuweto but Burning House you know you got two black men on the stage you know talking that shit a burning house was considerably darker ring was hopeful mm-hmm. you know ring was it was strong but hopeful burning house was a battle cry and i remember on final stage we made it back to final stage after the single hardest bout that i've ever was bananas was oh bananas dude i don't know how we won that one like talk about you you want to know how you won huh. tupac republican that's how you won Right there. Oh, that dude. was like like everyone was neck and neck, and everyone was jockeying for position until Tupac hologram Republican came dude. out, and then you guys that was the overdrive. Maybe hologram Tupac is a Republican. Yeah. A line by Jose Guerrero mm-hmm. in a poem called Hologram. Now the hologram of Michael Jackson had just come out, mm-hmm. uh, singing "Slave to the Rhythm." Interestingly, and then there was also the hologram Tupac that had come out two years before that. So these hologram dead celebrities, mm-hmm. we uh, created a poem around the authenticity of these uh, holograms, even artistically, when both of these men were berated in life. Michael was berated in life. Tupac was berated in life. People forget that shit about Tupac. Tupac was hated when he was alive. He really, really was. So, you know... And when and when he died, he's the goat, you know. And Michael gets cemented as you know whatever Mike was, uh, but we did a revisionist history for the sarcastic uh, for the sarcastic effect of these men's lives. And when 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 this cat Jose Guerrero says, "What if hologram Tupac is a Republican?" It just drove it home. Like that, that yeah. room erupted when yeah. you said that line, and and up until that point, it was yeah. you, uh, DPL. It was anybody's game, dude. Like there was, there was like two other teams in the mix. You mm-hmm. guys were separated by like less than a point. Yeah, I and mean, right there, you hit the overdrive. Yeah, and that was our group fiber. That was our group fiber, which we should have kicked the door with. I believe if had we kicked the door with hologram, we would have won. I believe we would have won. Uh, just looking at, but that—that's all hindsight. There was no way to see that going in. There's literally no way to see that. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. So what? So what had happened was, so then the next day we hit final stage was August 9th. Now, while we were on stage, Michael Brown had just been shot to death in Ferguson. 
while we're reading Burning House about Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant. And just the irony of us being on stage while Michael Brown bled out in the street like Ferguson started on the day of that final stage. And it was just so we got called by the Denver Post. I got called by the Denver Post. and was like, do you have any poetry around this? And I was like, well, you know what? We just so happened to have written a poem about our frustration at because uh, one of the lines was not again, not again, not again. You know what I mean? About life repeating this endless cycle of black public death. And that got put into a video that was very well edited by a girl uh, named, uh, I forgot this young lady's name, but she worked for the Post. And that got put on World Star Hip Hop. And uh, that got a lot of damn views on World Star Hip Hop. That got like 95,000 views. <laughs> On World Star Hip Hop, so yeah, it was just weird. So I have a video on World Star Hip Hop, and it's it's pretty all right. Yeah, it's pretty all right. <clears throat> yeah, man. So that year, did you guys finish? Fourth? We finished fourth. We finished fourth. Yeah. Um, and then you took a, a break from Slam, at least nationally, for yeah. a couple of years. Uh, what was it that made you decide to come back this year? Like, uh, what it, was it? Like, a personal decision you made? Maybe something to do with the climate? Dude, I'll tell you what it was. There's a young, it's a young poet by the name of Piper Mullins. Oh, let's bring us up to present day. Let's bring us up. Bring us up to present day. Uh, Nationals coming to Denver. Mm-hmm. Honestly, all I wanted to do was coach. All I wanted to do was damn coach. I don't want to do nothing else. I want to be at least a good molding force, and I know I can coach. Because I did in 2010. I already did it. You know what I mean? And uh, Coach C's cast fine. I was just happy that I ain't got to travel for nationals. So I, I knew I was going to be involved because I, I wanted to at least help mold Nuba's team. And the legacy of Nuba, uh, I feel comfortable coaching like that. But Piper was like, you should slam. And I'm like, no. I didn't have my best poems ready. I had written them. But because I wasn't thinking about that, I didn't think about you know slamming so there's something emotionally that i do to prepare myself for slams like there are drills that i run with my poems to get them on a certain level of tightness that makes me ready for battle and i just wasn't battle ready and so you you know everybody looked at me like are you gonna fucking do it or not at the last minute I caved. I totally caved, bro. And Piper was like, you should probably slam, though. And then, uh, and this is the, you know, it was it was the lowest I ever ranked on Slam Nuba. I ranked fifth. I never came in fifth before, ever. You know? I just, uh, I wasn't ready. And Slam, see, Slam has this thing energetically where it appreciates novelty to a level. Slam appreciates novelty. Especially because a lot of what we talk about is political. And so whatever comes out of the ethos, I feel, uh, in terms of preparedness uh, and and topic, topic, uh, being topical, gets rewarded, I feel. And I, and I have my poems like that, but they weren't ready to fire. Now, I've since got the motherfuckers ready to fire. I've since polished my guns. But I'm on the I'm on the uh, the Nuba team this year, 
Um, and when I looked at it, I was like, this is actually a pretty good squad. You got uh, Jose Guerrero in the champion spot. You got Tolu uh, or Tolua Abuwole in the uh, in the second spot, and a brand new person. We never had this before, but uh, you got our first Asian American member of Slam Nuba. Yep. My man Meta. Meta from Guam. From Guam, dude. Meta came through busting shots. I mean, Meta came through bussing shots. And, you know, Nuba's famous for having uh, n- incredible rookies. The rookie time bomb. Like, like, Nuba normally kills the rookie read. And that's been a tradition since Allende Russell. When Allende first hit the rookie read, th- it was like, there goes Nuba with those indie time, with those uh, newbie time bombs. You know what I mean? Those rookie time bombs. And Meta. Is right lockstep with that. And Johnny Osai did the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Brando did the same thing. I you don't know, know if you could call Brando a pure rookie, though. Brando had been on been plenty on, of minor stubbornness yeah. teams, but when it came to the national stage like that, Brando made it to the Tatler that year. <laughs> Brando. Brando makes it to the Tatler. Which is like the kind of like little underground tabloid newspaper of nationals. And it was just like, you know, which one, uh, who would say Brando got voted most likely to give himself an aneurysm <laughs> <laughs> during the poem. And it's accurate. That's so true. It's so, so true. true. But God, he would go out like a champ. Because he, he goes all the way. He doesn't leave nothing. Brando goes all the way. So anyway. Well, in that same vein, I don't yeah. think you could call Meta a pure rookie, too. Because I first met him, I want to say 2009, mm. when he was on a youth team mm. that Guam sent to Brave New Voices. Oh, wow. In Chicago. Oh, wow. And they didn't compete. They they weren't a part of the competition. They uh, were just there to show up. But they did uh, get to read one single group piece on yeah, the final stage yeah. of Brave New Voices that year. That's amazing. Well, you know, that's... It is. It is what it is. I. I. I, I suppose. Uh, I suppose you'd be right. But even to make the team, you can't be quite quite a rookie because you had to kick some ass to get there, mm-hmm. and you even had to get selected to get on the team. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and I was there. Uh, I, I. I ended up squaring up head to head against Meta on his selecting bout. So it was me and Meta in the top two to get into the actual slam off. And I'm telling you, I was like, oh, this kid is marvelous. I didn't know who he was, but I didn't expect much from him either. And I guess that's how I play in Slam. Like, I try not to pay my competition too much mind. But he got my attention. And when I, I and like, I was like, oh, shit, he's got to be on the team. He's got to be on the team. And he's on the team. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, yeah man. All right. So that takes us up to current day. Um, let me ask you some things about what's going on specifically with Nuba mm. and what's going on with Slam in general. Yeah. So Nuba just had the very last show at the Crossroads Theater, which was home for the better part of 10 years. Sure enough, sure enough, bro. Um, what do you think Nuba's legacy is right now at this point in time? I think Nuba, uh, to my, uh, 
estimation, and I can only talk from my perspective, has set a standard of slam excellence. Um, and it's given a voice to poets of color. Uh, and it, the venue seems to reward those voices. You know what I mean? But nationally, our reputation is pretty solid. It is, we are known as contenders. Whenever you say Europe against Nuba, you know that you're in a fight. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. Nobody on this squad bows and slam. You got to take it. You got to take it. Because if you don't take it, we going to take it from you. That's how we play. Now, you know, I think that is a, there's the fine line of creating a, a, a culture of excellence and a culture of competitiveness. You know what I mean? Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, that's one of those things that, you know, has been with us from the beginning. We started off being the team that was supposed to win it all again for Denver. So we wanted to come in and just really, really kick ass and take names. That's what we intended to do. That's, you know, from the very, very beginning, that's what we intended to do. And so, with that being said, it's just one of those situations where that's our expectation. That's the bar that we set when it comes to our slams. Uh, what can happen is that people feel that we are absorbed in victory and not poetry. And that can be detrimental because those who are purists will be uh, repelled from the team. They'll feel like it's not, and from the scene. They'll feel like it's not something that's pure. Uh, it's how certain spirits work, bro. For example, uh, not only I used to battle rap, but I come from martial arts. So when I was, you know, fighting guys, you know, if they beat me, it's because their muscles twitched faster and their bones were harder and they had better skills and I got winded. So when I lost that... I lost blood. I lost sweat. Uh, I woke up with pain. I remember soaking in bathtubs after fighting guys. You know what I'm saying? So to me, the competitive edge, the, the competitive culture of Slam Nuba, in context of what I've done, other things competitively, I don't feel the kind of uh, pressure that other people feel. Some, some spirits feel this in a whole different way. You know... Um, and they don't like that shit. And so I got aware recently of the also the loss of masculine energy. Cis males, but brown cis males on Nuba. So is that the same thing? Do you do do you regulate that the same? You know what I'm saying? Because these brown cis males felt marginalized in other areas, felt muted in other areas. And these brown cis males got a life experience that knocks heads when it comes to their writing. See what I'm saying? So, somebody asked me what I could do about that. I ain't got no answer for you. You know, I miss the brown cis male like a motherfucker. I barely made a team. I barely made Tolu kick my ass this year. Yeah. That's what happened. Starting from the one position. Starting from the one. Tolu drew the one. Tolu drew the one. I I, I, I drew the, the last. I barely made it. So... When I see female poets or, or female presenting poets, I just be like, that's, that's competition. 
you got five random ass judges pulled from the populace. You don't even know who's going to show up that night. So it's not competition the same way in martial arts. Yeah. You know, combat is competition because then it's mm. you versus another actual person. Which like is the same say. as battle rap, too. Yeah, well, it's like the <clears throat> muscles twitch harder and the bones yeah. are stronger. And, like, yeah. it, it's literally, like, yeah. in your control whether you win yeah. or lose. But with Slam, it's within the control of five random people. People, who dude. Just have scorecards in the audience. You do not know what they're going to be feeling. Right. You don't know what they're going to resonate with. You don't know if the person that would have shifted your favor, like, oh, shit, I got to call. Babysitter issues got to go, right? You don't know what's going on. So when you go and present, man, I don't even know what to say. You know, I, to, to, to me, Slam is still anybody's game. And these cis male brown poets get the same scorecards everybody else get. And for real, for real, I don't got an answer to this. And, like, I've been struggling with what to do. One thing that I know that I could do is now that I'm on the team, I could kind of mitigate uh, how far into boys' town I go. You know, I don't got to be so cock-swinging, alpha motherfucking traditional uh, Neanderthal I can be. You know what I'm saying? I could be a little more measured and don't... I don't got to say the grossest thing every time. You know? (laughs) Um... But in terms of the competition, I mean, I'm loving my squad and, you know, I feel we'll be enriched by the diversity of voices that come to this freaking set. That's it, you know. Uh, So that's more to do with, like, Nuba specifically. What do you think the legacy of poetry slam in general is going to be? Because poetry... It goes through these different phases, mm-hmm. you know. You've got like the romantics, and the modernists, right. and the post right. the beats, and and they all had their own, you know, contributions to the history of poetry. What do you think <clears throat> Slam's contribution to the history of literature and poetry is going to be? It's going to be difficult to see, but I know that it's expanding like a motherfucker. You got button poetry with views to the millions, man. You know, on YouTube, you you, you got minor celebrities out of cast that'll hit the open mic just one year later. Their work is going to be dissected. I just got done presenting to Boys and Girls Club teachers who want to bring SLAM into the classroom for creative writing to reach specifically difficult, at-risk populations. You know, that's going to be part of the legacy. I, I think that the, comp, that the competitive element to me is like gymnastics, where it's like a fight, you got to beat the other person. In gymnastics, you got to beat yourself. Meaning you got to push your game to the highest level. As long as that keeps happening, I'm feeling comfortable that you're going to see some beautiful things come out of it. Um, because within Slam, I call Slam High. You know, it's a high school. Slam's a fucking high school. You got certain trends that people don't like. You know what I mean? I remember when, like, 07 to 09, maybe even up into, like, 2011, there was a lot of discussion around the rape poem. And a lot of cats was presenting it. And then, like, what happened when men was presenting rape poems about rapes that didn't go through? Then they found out somebody had made up a rape situation to, like, make a fucking poem hot. And when you got five random judges, they don't know that shit about you. So now you got talent versus character and substance. You could be a talented writer. So within Slam, you have things like that. That, like, at Slam High School... You know, motherfucking trends and shit come and go. But in terms of the audience and the art that they get and the personas that get created, man, shit, dude. You, 
this is going to be good for the people, like the plan was supposed to be, you know? The more true reflection of the the people, the politics, the discussions that are happening at the time. Man, this is going every Every slam, slam poems be so current event that they become time capsules. Like, I look at the album, my first album, Impact, I wrote during the Bush administration. That's a time capsule. There's details in those poems. You know, I talked about Colin Powell. He ain't in the news now. But he was back in the Iraq war when it was first getting started. You know what I mean? And Donald Rumsfeld and all this shit, you know. Uh, you know, there were, Slam was, was going to be time capsule. If, if there was Slam like this during the 70s and the Watergate era, you could just watch Watergate era Slam poets and get a good feeling of what it was like to live at that time. And people are going to be like, what was it going to be like to live at the early 20th century? I'm talking 21st century, pardon me. Uh, you know, in, in the 2010s, going on in the 2020s. You could pull up a slam poet and time capsule your ass. And what the crowd reacts to, that's what the crowd was feeling. That's what the people were experiencing at the time. And that poet tapped into it. And that's what I, man, think about that, bro. That's why we listen to the last poets. We want to live, what was the 60s like? You know what I'm saying? Revolution would not tell about you know, party and bullshit, yeah, 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 right. We listen to that, the freaking hot, the, the hip hop from the 80s, you know, like rappers delight. You talking about Superman and shit, and KO Peck tape and shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not gonna fuck with KO Peck tape no more, man. You know what I'm saying? The macaroni sucker, the peas on bush, and the chicken it tastes like wood, you know. So you come from just a really performance-rich background. You know, yeah. you've got acting, you've got music, yeah. you know, you, you've been formally trained in that. How has uh, Poetry Slam impacted your life specifically that, that you don't think you would have gotten in those other realms? I, I certainly wouldn't have gotten the level of ideas to write about. I mean, when you go to National Slam, you get poetry diarrhea the first time. You just start flowing. <laughs> It just comes out, man. It just comes out, man. It just... I mean, I remember... It, it, it hit Allende so hard. He couldn't stop writing, man. You know? And when you... And, and then when you get, like, a national reputation and you start touring, you know, then that that's part of your legacy as a person. You know? So I wouldn't have stepped into that. You know, like, having been the National Poetry Slam kind of champion for a year and shit during the time that I was and touring like that you know and kind of being the talk of slam and you know scott woods writing an article about my indie you know what i mean calling it what he called it you know that was great to to be recognized and to be asked to go to new york by mo brown you know what i'm saying like to to be requested at these places it was just dope you know and uh so that's something that i will always have that's just a part of me. That's a part of my story now, you know? Okay. Yes, sir. All right. Um, two more questions for you. Yeah, yeah, two more. Let's go. That's one of the same questions I ask everybody. So <clears throat> you're walking along a beach. Mm-hmm. You find a magic lamp on the beach. Mm-hmm. You're up three times. Magic Genie pops out and says, you have one wish for Denver poetry. What is your one wish for Denver poetry? Hmm. You know, Denver poetry is so good. What would I wish for? I wish that the taste in venues wasn't so seemingly polarized. You know what I mean? I feel like 
the taste at the Merc and what they want to hear from their poets is a little bit different than what they want to hear at Nuba, you know. And I wish that the voices was equally, I guess, weighted in both places. That's the only thing I can really think of, you know what I'm saying? Because there's so much good here. You know, other than like, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men and women and trans folk. Uh, I don't know really what to say. That polarization is going to be there. You know what I mean? It's more unity between the venues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More unity and crossover between the venues is cool. How do you think we can get to there? Everybody keeps trying, man. You know what I mean? Um... And you can't fault people for being comfortable where they're comfortable either. You know? As long as that comfort ain't hurting nobody now. If, it's the, if the comfort's hurting somebody. If your comfort comes at the price of somebody else's discomfort or pain, then that's a problem. But it ain't really like that. You know, um, I will have to get back to you on that one, bro. I really don't know the answer to that per se. But uh, that's the only really thing I can think about. Um... That's it. Uh, I could say that one of the things... Well, but this is Slam in general, though. This is not even Denver Slam. I'm asking about Denver Slam. Yeah, okay. That's all I got to say. Because the scene pretty dope, man. You know? The scene's pretty... Like, there's personality conflicts and shit, but not to them or like other places. There's other places who would wish that they was in Denver Slam. For real. You know? Like, politically and otherwise. Wish they was in Denver Slam. I've heard some stories. Yeah. Like, the venues get, like, cracked and fractured, and then they split off. Yeah. You know, here, and you paid over here, and then you guys are, like... Tribalized. And we, we've been kind of fortunate to have, like, two solid adult tribes and one solid youth tribe for a long time with members that go to both slams and become members of both slam teams. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'd have to get back to you. I mean, I just wish that there was, like... Here's what I wish... I wish that there was like honestly, I wish like like Nuba was as consistent as Mercury. I wish there was like that many slams. Like I wish there was like four motherfucking Nuba slams every every like month. So once a week. Yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. Once that'll be tight, dog. Because then I could try out my shit more often, and everybody could try their shit more often. And I suppose I could do that at Merc too. But uh, I be, I feel like sometimes we suffer because of that. That's the only thing I could think because really, that's not a big deal. You know what I mean? And it's not like some shit that's like irreparable. Like we we just can't get. You <laughs> fucking probably could if you try. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's the only thing I could think, man. And that like there will always be money in our coffers. I wish there was always money in our coffers for whatever fuck we needed. Like more than enough, where we all get scooters where we're going. All get scooters. We all get fucking scooters where we're going. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to uh, plug or promote before I turn the recorder off? Yeah, the Renaissance Open Mic. We at the Casbah first and third Thursdays. First and third Thursdays. I want to see you there, Eddie. It was good. It's been a minute since I've been to the Casbah. You got to come to the Casbah, man. Like, I mean, that was back when reality was still running yeah, things. Yeah, and, and like I changed the vibe, bro, because a lot of stuff that happened back then kind of was caustic towards poets, where it would be like, if you didn't, quote-unquote, wreck the crowd or be the, quote-unquote, hottest poet, 
then you was looked at as like a less of a person. And now that great got some great competition going on, but it wasn't necessary. And I changed the vibe of the Renaissance so that people who are like even less experienced will come up there and feel good about their lives afterwards and not want to <laughs> jump off of a fucking cliff afterwards if they you know what I'm saying so meaning it's a safe space bro that's good that's yeah so we have a first and third Thursday it's the cast ball eight, 8.30 I believe 8 something what 8 yeah just fucking 8 what time is my own venue I don't know 8 8-ish <laughs> eight 8-ish eight you just get there I remember when I used to go to the, the Caswell and reality was running things like like you said, mm. if, if you got up there and you read something that wasn't, you mm. know, to the taste of the of the venue, then he would let you have it. Like, he would let you know. Yeah. He always had something to say. Yeah. And so I get up there and I do the, the world's worst love poem. Yeah. He does not know what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a good poem, though. <laughs> oh, the love. That was such a good poem. <laughs> Well, thank you again to Theo, Lucifer, and Wilson for stopping by. All right, man. Uh, appreciate you. We're going to go back into the podcast. Here we go. Another fantastic interview here on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Another huge, huge thank you to Theo Lucifuri Wilson for being just so generous with his time, being so open with his responses, and just so hilarious. I I told you it was the funnest interview I ever did, and I was not lying. That was that was. So I I laughed, I cracked up just going back over the audio <laughs> or just like putting this on the podcast. That's how great this was. So another huge thank you to uh, Theo Lucifuri Wilson. And just a couple of quick hits before we get out of here. First up, your next feature at the Mercury Cafe is going to be Joy Young out of Arizona. That's going to happen on June 18th. Definitely check that out. If you would like to read, then the sign-up sheets go out at 7.30. Open mic starts at 8 feature is about 8.45. The slam begins about 9 o'clock. We are still looking for volunteers for the National Poetry Slam, and you can do that at npsdenver.com. If you'd like to volunteer, if you would like to get into the shows for free, all except for the final stage show, and just, you know, do something that puts you in the best seat in the house, then definitely check that out. National Poetry Slam in Denver. And finally, thanks to Jill Carno. Snap! Make a noise! do anything you should just be excited to franklin cruz do, do, do. okay uh <laughs> mary mcdonough okay so the first rule of the merc is this ain't no starbucks motherfucker and the audience at the mercury cafe that'll do it for us this week thank you so much for checking us out next week i've got another special treat for you next week is none other than denver legend poetry slam champion not only as a player, but as a coach, Jen Rinaldi. You definitely want to check that out. Do not miss next week's show. Until then, always remember that the points are not the point. That the poetry is not the point. That the point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week.